Well, a friend allowed me um, to share a recent story in her life with you in hopes that it might open up um, some healing for you as well. Um, She had hit a tough place, decided to go to a Christian counselor, and the counselor was wise and asking questions and understanding, and there was one particular memory that kept coming up, and the counselor said, I want to ask you if you'll trust me and you'll do something with me for a minute. Would you would you close your eyes, and you don't have to speak this out loud. You can do it in your own heart. But, but would you imagine your adult self going back to that moment, going back to that teenage girl? And, and would you imagine what you would say as your adult safe self to that hurting, broken teenage girl? My friend said that she grew up in a home where um, it just was full of anger. Um, the anger was um, explosive. You always felt like you were walking on eggshells because you never knew, you knew something would set it off. You just didn't know what it would be. And so you, you lived sort of like knowing that it was going to happen and you weren't sure when the explosion was going to happen or what it was going to be about, but you would pretty much for sure be caught in the middle of it. And when this young woman looked back at that hurting teenage girl, she said that she realized all of a sudden, oh my gosh, there's no adult here. There's there's a mother and a father that are really broken, and, and they're really angry. They're angry at God, and they're angry at each other, and they're angry at the world, and and this teenage girl essentially felt There's no adult here. And so she learned anger very, very skillfully to protect, in her mind, two younger siblings. She learned the tool of anger to fight back against the anger that was being displayed to, in a sense, be the adult to protect, to shield these two younger siblings. And after that day... She felt a new freedom to say, I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want to live with this explosive anger that I feel like has to protect me from the world, from people, from hurt. We're at the end of a series, and today we're looking at something that's tough. We're looking at anger, and it's tough because we all experience it. And and we want to, as honestly as we can, say, God, how do we root out this thing that's so wounding? Anger that's so wounding. It wounds us. It it wounds other people. How do we root out that brokenness in our life as much as we're able to and put on a patience, like a pause button, before we explode, before we let anger take over us? How do we do that? And and we're going to look to the passage that we read earlier if you were in the service And it's in Ephesians. And here's what I want to say to you about the letter Ephesians. We call it the book of Ephesians, but it's really a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul. And if the letter to the church in Rome that we call Romans is the mind of Christ, the the letter Ephesians to the church in Ephesus is the heart of Christ. I mean, sorry, of Paul. (laughs) The heart of Paul. He was in a cave, he was in a dungeon, he was 
he was in a prison, and he knew that he was likely going to die. He felt sure he felt the death sentence. And so if you were, knew that you were going to die, what would you want to tell the people you love the most? And so he's writing these beloved friends in the city of Ephesus, and in, in the letter that we call Ephesians just pours at him. And here's some of the things he says at the beginning of the letter. He says, friends, God has lavished grace on you. Not just a little bit of grace, lavish, like a pouring out of grace on your life. You were, there was a deadness about you. You were separated from a holy God. There were things in you that were dead. There was a wisdom that was dead. There was part of your soul that was dead. You were literally disconnected from a holy God. And God came after you. He bought you back with his son's life on a cross. He bought you back. He paid for your brokenness of the past, the present, everything of the future. He paid for it. It's done. There's a seal on you now that says, I've adopted you as a daughter, as a son. It can never be taken away. You were far off. Paul's writing, you were so far off and God brought you back. He bought you back. Not that you would brag, that you would feel the love of God. And then he says this. Imagine him in that, in that prison, in that cave writing. He says, in light of all that, in light of how far God went to come for you, would you struggle well in this world? Would you struggle courageously and well with your brokenness? Because you might be the only person someone knows that loves God, and they're watching to see, is this thing for real? He says, would you struggle well? And this is how he puts it. He says, would you courageously and purposely take off your old self? And you say, what is your old self? Your old self is where Holly's in charge. Holly's doing what Holly wants to do. Holly's chasing down Holly's desires, and she's making it look the way she wants it to look. And you know what? Honestly, she's caving in to a whole lot of stuff that was broken before she became a Christian. That's the old self. I'm in charge. And then he says, so would you take that off? Would you work to take that off each day? And then would you write your mind and soul and heart with how God sees the world? How God sees it. Would you work to do that? And then would you put on your new self? That's the self that's connected to Christ, that's been reconnected to God. Would you take off your old self? Would you write your mind and heart and soul with the way God sees life and people and purpose and his kingdom? And would you put on the new self? So let's start with that. Put off your old self. Paul actually puts it like this in four uh, Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. Man, that old self in me, that's what we've been talking about in this series. It's the apathy about God and about other people. I'm just indifferent sometimes. It's the pride, it's the, it's the greed, it's the lust and gluttony that we, that we have in the shadows that we're hiding away. It's the envy at other people, it's the anger, that's the old self stuff. And you know what, why is it so hard to let go of that? Why do we so easily become, 
become like that and drift towards it and let that define our life. I think it's because we are most comfortable being like the world. We don't want to be different. I mean, winning the approval of the world becomes ultra important. I want to paint a broad stroke and just call that what it is. It's that we can be approval addicts. We can be approval addicts. I want to talk about what does it look like when we're struggling with that approval addiction. And what's the alternative? What's God's alternative? An author named Mitch Pristine just wrote a book recently. It's just called Popular. What's the name of the whole book? And he says that when you're in your late teens, a chemical is released in your brain. And, and that chemical makes blending in with the world the most important thing that can happen in your life. Now, if you've survived high school, you remember this. If you're in high school, you're fighting against this. The most important thing in the world would be don't stand out. Blend in with the world. Here's the thing that we sometimes forget, though. The chemical's still in us. It doesn't leave. We just learn to cover it up better. We, we learn to make it prettier and, and, and more acceptable. We maybe aren't quite as edgy about it, but, but we still have this addiction to what you think of me, to what I think of you. He talks about, in his book, Popular, he talks about popularity, and he says there's two kinds of popularity. One is the kind we think of most readily, which is status, which is status is how you're going to impress other people, right? You're going to be rich, you're going to be beautiful, you're going to be powerful, you're going to be famous. You know, that's status. And he says, but it turns out it's not always what you think. They did a survey in a high school, and this seems kind of wrong to me, but he did it. They did a survey, and they asked every student in the school, who's the most popular girl in school? Hands down. I mean, like far and away, this young girl named Alexandra won. I mean, she is tall, attractive, impeccably dressed, confident, expresses herself well, hands down. Then they asked, who's the most disliked girl in the school? Same girl. They said she's gossipy, she's mean, she's selfish, she's exclusive. She's the most popular and the most disliked. So it turns out that popularity and happiness don't always go together. He said, but there's another kind of popularity. And he used the word, I love this, likability. This is a person that's other-centered. This is a person that, that you start to talk to, and they ask you a lot of questions because they're genuinely interested in who you are and what your story is. This is a person that you leave, and you're like, you know, I matter. You leave the conversation with them, and you're like, I matter. I, I, I sort of want to be my best self. Like, it, they breathe life into you. You leave people that are all about status and they've talked about themselves most of the time and you leave feeling just a little less than right like what have I been doing in my life <laughs> I wish I could do some of that it's just a little less than it struck me as I was reading the book that likability is just being Jesus like 
Jesus-like is, is this sense of taking off the old self that really does kind of want it to be all about me and lining up my heart and mind and soul with how God sees the world and remembering that I've been invaded by the love of God. I've been overwhelmed by the love of God. And because of that, I can turn around and offer it to you and not need from you. So this, this old self, this wrestling with being an addict to what other people think of me is real. So what does Paul say? He says, will you wrestle yourself away from that as best you know how? And will you line up your mind and soul and heart with what God says? So what's the alternative to this? Here it is. Ephesians 4.23. Be made new in the attitude of your mind. Here's the alternative. What have you worked to live for an audience of one? It's not my idea. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish thinker, said, what if our goal in life is to struggle well to live for an audience of one? To live for what God says about me. To live for what God says my purpose is. God says my goal should be. God says my life should look like. To participate in God's kingdom. What if I live my life more for an audience of one? I actually wrote that on the first page of my Bible. Holly, audience of one. Because I've wrestled with it just like you do. The question isn't will I seek approval? question is where will I go for it? Friends, when you look at a baby, and um, I think Isla, Gray's little girl, right now is my favorite baby to do this with because she has these cheeks that are like miles long. Of course, Esme does too, so I might have to get in some of that. And you like make faces at them, and you're like, la you know, trying to get them to laugh, and they just beam, right? You're like, you're so precious, and they just beam because we're made to want approval. Like, we're going to seek it out. It's not if we're going to seek approval. It's where we're going to seek approval. See, I have an infinite need for approval, and there's only one place that that can be fulfilled. God has an infinite supply. God has an infinite supply to meet my infinite need. Only God does. Only God will say, Holly, what you gave was your very best, and it was enough. It was enough. It was enough in your family. It was enough in your friendships. It was enough in your work. It was enough. You're enough. Only God will make you feel secure in his love. Only God will make you feel secure in your identity, that you're a daughter or son of Christ, that that cannot be taken from you. Only God can fill you with hope and strength to face a day that you think, I have no idea how I'll get through this day. Only God can do that. He has an infinite supply for you. Do you know right now that if you go today and you type into YouTube how to do a selfie, how do I do a selfie? There are 13,000 tutorials that come up. 13,000 videos about how to do a selfie. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's, you know, you need to know some tips. Amy and I were in class one time when the selfie thing was just happening, and we're like, Let's take a selfie, right? So we did it from down here. What's wrong with that, students? 75 chins. That's what that was right there. We were like, oh, that's terrible. And then we learned it's up and to the right. That's how you take a selfie. But the point of this is it's 13,000 videos about how to 
make you think I'm awesome, a lot more awesome than I am. Paul actually says this. He says, you know what, the truth is, you can't, you can't be reaching for human approval, and, human approval and God's approval at the same time. I mean, one beats out the other. You, you can't do them at the same time. He put it like this. He said, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? Because if I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. John, who was Jesus' best friend when he walked on the earth, he, he wrote it like this. He said, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And then in another place, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and they were just a big fat mess, and they were talking smack about Paul, and he wrote him, and he said this, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Oh, that we could be more there. That we could be more there. So, so we have this addiction to how other people see us and this addiction to running our own life. And, and, and Paul says in Ephesians, will you fight against that? Will you struggle well against it? Will you line up your heart and soul and mind with how God sees you in this world? And then he says this. Would you put on your new self? In Ephesians 4, 24, he says, Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And here's, I think, what that looks like in regard to our anger. Just some practical things. I think we need to acknowledge that everybody deals with anger. Some people might be sitting here today and you think, you know, I don't really, I don't really deal with anger. I mean, it's not really my thing. Like, and, and usually that's because we're thinking of the explosive anger, right? Like the anger that just like tears somebody up because they're so good with their words and they can just take you apart in like half a skinny second. But the truth is, anger is a secondary emotion. It's always covering up the root hurt. It covers up things like frustration, embarrassment, being overlooked, being wounded by someone. It covers that up. And so if you say, I'm not really angry, I'm just hurt. You're dealing with anger. I'm not really angry, I'm just frustrated. You're dealing with anger. And, and your way might be the verbal assault. You might be able to tear someone up with your tongue because you're quick and you can on your feet like that. Or might be very passive. You give them the silent treatment, cold shoulder. And it's kind of harbor bitterness, right? And you play the conversation over and over again in your head, and you're like, I'm really punishing them by removing myself from them. I mean, they're going to get the message this time, right? I'm disconnecting from you. You'll have none of my goodness, right? And so now, now you'll be sorry. A friend who's a pastor who's 22 years into a marriage and they hit a rough place he went to counseling and 22 years into marriage he realized that that's what he had been doing with his wife their whole marriage that that he wasn't explosive he wasn't attacking he wasn't like that kind of guy but anytime she really hurt him he just withdrew from her I mean he just kind of went cold just kind of punished her, you know, silently. 
How do you deal with anger? What does it look like for you? Some, some people believe that Christians should never be angry, and that's not true because guess what? God gets angry. God has wrath, and Jesus got angry. One day Jesus was in the synagogue, and the, the Pharisees were there. They were the leaders of the synagogue, if you will, the leaders of the church of their day. And the, the leaders were watching Jesus, and there was a man who his entire life had had a paralyzed, withered hand. He'd never been able to use his hand his entire life. And, and Jesus started to walk towards him, and the Pharisees said, you're not going to heal him today, are you? Because it was the Sabbath. And the commandment of God is rest on the Sabbath. And see, that commandment was given for our hearts. It was given that our souls would be able to breathe again. From the beat up of the week, that we would rest, that we would play, that we would laugh, that our souls would remember that there was room for them. That's the intent of the Sabbath. That's the heart of God about the Sabbath. And they had taken that heart of God and turned it into a steadfast rule. You shall do nothing on the Sabbath, not get your donkey out of a ditch, not heal a man. And it said that Jesus was burning with anger against them because they had taken a rule that they made up and put it over the life of a man. Put it over the heart of a man. And Jesus just walked over and just touched his hand. And just made it whole right there. So it turns out there's a, there's a righteous anger. There's a right way to be angry. And there's a bad way to be angry. And so to get at the difference there, the right way, the bad way, I, I want to say Let's try to get at the root of understanding my anger. And here's something to think about. Broken anger, bad anger, hurtful anger comes from loving the wrong thing or loving the right things out of proportion. It comes from loving the wrong thing or loving the right things out of proportion. True story. A friend of mine was uptown. They opened their door and dinged the car beside them, which is a common occurrence. Rather unfortunate because it was a Ferrari that they dinged. Okay, that's a bad day. I'm just going to say it, all right? So they leave a note, and they get a call later on that day. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they're going to have to replace the whole door. And my friend's like, okay, well, just send me the body shop, you know, material, and we'll, we'll get after it. And so, all right, hung up. Calls back the next day. You know what? It's worse than I thought. We're going to have to replace the whole side, the whole side, because the door's going to look different whole side's going to have to be replaced. Okay, well, just send me the work. And, I, you know, he's starting to get sick feeling in his stomach. Guy calls back two days later. You know what? We're going to have to send the whole car to Italy. It's not working. True story. It's not working. We're going to have to send the whole car over there and get this sucker fixed because it is it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> calls back a fourth time and says, you know what? Just forget it. I cannot live with the fact that it's been dinged. I'm getting a new one. My friend said, could I have your old one? Because <laughs> I could live with that. I could live with that ding. That's, uh, that's out of proportion. But it gets more serious, right? Like we do that. We get good things out of proportion. Like dad's asleep on the couch. And he said to the kids like five minutes ago, hey, guys, I'm beat tired. I'm done. I'm just going to take a nap. If you guys could play outside. Um, and I'm just 30 minutes. I just need 30 minutes, right? 
fair, totally fair. And the kids come in like six minutes later. They already forgot. And they're like, blah, and wake him up. And he explodes all over them. Now, what's fair? Fair is that he told him he asked for something, right? He needed rest. That's fair. What's out of proportion is he had a chance to speak to the heart of that kid, right? And he missed it because out of out of proportion was his need for his own convenience. I have a friend that every single Sunday on the way to church, his family was arguing. Every single Sunday. He said, without fail, and here's the argument, ready? Dad liked to be early. He, he liked to be early or at least on time. Button seat, right? And mom, guess what? You know what's coming. Always late. Always late. So the product of this lifetime argument was every single memory of going to church, three kids in the back seat, living in an argument. It's out of proportion. You, know, you want your reputation to be good. You want it to look like you have it all together. You value something great. What if you drive a different car? What if instead of saying, your mom is so bad because she's always late, what if you say, you know what, your mom is great at a lot of things. She's amazing. This just doesn't happen to be one of them. What if someone says something bad about your best friend or your spouse, your child, and you just explode all over them, right? Like you're just like, Bleh! Maybe it's out of proportion that you need your life, your family, your friendships to look perfect. That it's not okay to be broken. Paul writes at the end of Ephesians, he says in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. <laughs> wow, we're going to struggle with that. We're going to struggle with it. So how's the best way to maybe struggle well? Here's what I would offer to you, a, a sentence that's really helped me in this. We recognize that we are first sinners and only secondly sinned against. This couple was two years into marriage and they were miserable. I mean, they were furious with each other. They were both Christians. They went to a Christian counselor and they were literally sitting on different ends of the couch. And, and one of, you know, the man's like, here's all the ways she's disappointed me. Here's all the ways she's let me down. She said she's going to do this. She does this. It's 30 minutes of ranting, ranting, ranting. And then she starts up. She's just as adamant. She's like, you know, he said it. Well, life was going to be like this. It's like this. I tell him, and he does it all over again. Rant, 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 rant. Counselor backs up for a second and says, I don't think you understand the gospel. They're like, what? We're not talking about the gospel. We're talking about what he did, what she did. No, no, no. I don't think you, either you don't understand it or you've forgotten it. Because you are both sitting here like two righteous people. Only aware of the other person's sin. Here's the gospel. Because of the darkness and the brokenness of me, Holly, Jesus came and died. There was no other way for me to re be reconnected back to God because of the darkness and the sin and the brokenness of my mind and heart and soul. Jesus came and died on the cross. And he would have done it if it was just you two. 
that God's wrath for my brokenness and my darkness was poured out on Jesus in my stead. That I might be reconnected to a holy God through nothing that I had earned or done. That's the gospel. And so the thing is, if I remember that I'm first a sinner and only secondly sinned against, is it going to fix everything? No. It's not. We're still going to have to deal with our problem. But you know what it is going to do? It's going to change our perspective dramatically. Because I might not come at you quite as hard when I remember, man, I'm broken too. I'm a big, fat, broken mess. And so let's, let's talk about our brokenness. One last thought. The Bible also says, Paul wrote at the end of his letter, don't let the sun go down on your anger. <laughs> that's the kind of statement in the Bible that people that aren't walking with Christ yet, they read it and they're like, see, that's why I can't be a Christian. That's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Who can do that? That's ridiculous. And the truth is, if we never went to bed angry, we would be some seriously tired people, right? But that's not what that means. What it means is this. I'm going to resign as the judge of the universe. Let me put it another way. I don't have to carry around with me the burden of righting every wrong. Because here's what it'll do. I'll be trying to go to sleep. And I'll be replaying the conversation. And I'll be replaying how you injured me and how you hurt me and how wrong that was, and, and how I'm still carrying that pain around. I'll be replaying that, and I won't be able to rest. And then if I continue to carry it, it becomes a bitterness and a disdain inside of my soul, and it's eating me up from the inside. I'm literally dying from the inside out from this thing that I'm carrying, this revenge that I want, or this writing of this wrong that was so wrong, and yes, it really was. But I can't make you do something. And I can't make this world different than it is. Paul delves into it more in Romans 12. He says this. I love this. He says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. I love that he says, if it's possible. Because here's the thing, friends. Sometimes we're going to do everything we can to mend something with another person. And this side of heaven, it's not going to happen. And so I love that Paul says that if it's possible. But then he goes on in verse 19, 12, 19 Romans. He says, beloved, in other words, broken, hurting people who have been truly wounded by others' brokenness. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, the Lord says. And then it goes on, he presses farther. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And you're like, yeah, now that's what I'm talking about. Heaping some burning coals on there. Now, that's, it's actually a Jewish metaphor. And this is what it means. When somebody's truly wronged you and injured you, if you were to go to God and say, God, I'm going to be honest, I don't have it. 
I really, I want bad for them. I want hurt for them. I want confession from them. I, I want all that plus some more stuff that kept me up last night. But I want to align my heart and soul and mind with you. So I'm going to choose to wrestle this old self stuff out of me. And I'm going to ask for your strength and, and your power to do something that I can only do in Christ. And I'm going to offer them kindness. Because when you heat burning coals on something, it wakes it up, right? It startles it. And so it may just be that kindness offered in hatred wakes the person up to their brokenness. It may just be that they finally go, wow, I am hurting people around me. I got to make something different. But here's the thing. Maybe they won't. And here's what I want to say to you. God forgets nothing. The evils of this world, the, the woundedness that is inflicted on innocent people, the brokenness that people feel liberty to spew all over the place with no regard for hearts, with no regard for someone else's life, the, the liberty of just pouring out the selfishness and the hatred. God sees it all. He says, I see it all. I forget nothing. And I want to say to you that you may not get the satisfaction and the vengeance on this side of earth. That person may literally never wake up, but I want you to understand something. When God comes back, he's going to make it right. Every evil, every wound, every abuse, every attack, every spewing of selfishness and hatred, he's going to make it right. And because he's going to, you can release it to him. So you don't have to carry it. So you don't have to be dying from the inside out. So that bitterness doesn't spill out into the people around you that you love. When it's about someone else entirely. Friends, we, we won't fix anger in us. It's an emotion. We can't just shut it off. But we can ask God to help us struggle well with it to be a little bit better at it today than I was last year. God willing, in 10 years, that I'd be a little bit better at it than I was today. I think that what God is asking us when he says put on this new person is he's saying, will you struggle well? Because the world is watching to see if I'm real, to see if this is real. Will you struggle well? Will you be courageous? And that's what I think Easter is, friends. I think Easter is the call to struggle well and to be courageous. See, this is Palm Sunday, and in a week we'll celebrate the fact that some women, the day after Jesus was buried and sealed in a cave, they came because they wanted to ask if they could care for his body because they were heartbroken because he was their friend, and he gave them hope and life and showed them God like no one had ever done before, little did they know, they got there and it was empty. And they courageously ran back 
to tell people that it was empty. It was courageous because nobody listened to women. Women couldn't even testify in court. They courageously went up to a group of men and said, he's not there. And those men ran and saw an empty cave where Jesus' body had been. And then they courageously spoke to a ready Jewish world, Jewish merchant, Jewish business, Jewish family. And they said to this Jewish world, we missed it. He really was the Messiah. And that was courageous. It cost them in the end. It cost them their lives. And, what, and they told somebody who told somebody who told somebody, as it turns out, Easter is the great handoff. And when I was a freshman in college, someone told me. And God now says, will, says to me, will you struggle well and will you in every way you can courageously hand off the truth to the next person? Friends, Easter is a great handoff from the empty tomb to today and going forward. And God says, will you be courageous in that? Will you struggle well? Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray as the body of Christ that we would be more, um, more distressed about our own brokenness than about the brokenness of people around us. And that is a very, very, very hard thing to do that we can only do in Jesus. But God, I come before you um, for my friends and for myself, and I say, thank you, Lord, that you did not run from our brokenness. That you did not say that's too messy, that's too broken, you haven't earned it, you're not good enough. But in our brokenness and mess, you move towards us, you move towards me. So God, as we look towards Easter, would you hear us say, thank you. Thank you that you moved towards and you are still moving towards our brokenness. That you're not afraid of it. It's not too messy for you. It doesn't make you want to walk away and just steer clear. But you move in with your healing and your goodness and your love. And you help us struggle well. Thank you, Father. Thank you for lavishing, lavishing grace on us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.